Hi everybody, it's Neil here. And before today's episode, I wanted to take a minute to mention the incredibly sad news this week at the heart of the testing community with the tragic passing of Linnea Nordstrom, daughter of tester Christopher Nordstrom, after a brave battle with a rare and aggressive brain tumour. Christopher is well known throughout the community for his technical testing expertise and is one of the first professional testing contacts that I made who I could truly consider to be a friend. Since Linnea was diagnosed in late 2016, he's turned his efforts towards fundraising to help pay towards the cost of experimental treatments, which involve trips to see specialists in Mexico, and throughout he shared blog posts and email updates of a beautiful and fearless young girl and her proud brother as they strive to make the most out of the cruelest that life could throw their way. I hope you'll join me in expressing our sincerest condolences to Christopher and his family during this impossibly difficult time. And I hope that the community's support can help them to share the burden in some small way. This episode was recorded on Wednesday. My guest Michelle and I heard the news about Linnea literally five minutes before we started recording. So if you detect a slightly subdued atmosphere, that's the reason why. We still have a great discussion for you and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Tester's Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Tester's Island Discs, where my guest for episode 22 is Michelle Playfair. Michelle has progressed through a variety of roles in software development, eventually finding her way into testing. Her most recent role was as Agile Team Facilitator at Zero in Melbourne, Australia, She's recently moved to become executive director with Yao, who run peer conferences and workshops for developers in Australia, Singapore, and beyond. And she's talking at the upcoming Test Bash Australia with her presentation, A Tester's Guide to Changing Hearts and Minds. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks, Neil. It's great to be here. How's your day been? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. Hump day, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm longing for the hump day to end. I say I'm, I'm mid-morning, literally, I've just parked at the middle of a really difficult software release and I've said, I'll be back in an hour because I've got more important things to do right now uh, because I'm really looking forward to a discussion with you, Michelle. Not least because you've gone through, as I said, a whole load of different roles before you found your way into testing. What are the sort of things that you've covered in your career to date? Oh, I have. I like to say I've done the uh, the soup to nuts of software development. My first job, I did computer science at university. My first job out of uni was with what was then Anderson Consulting. So as a consultant, we were expected to do basically BA type of role, write the code, do the testing, do the training. Um, and then from there, I, I, I went on to consulting roles where I was more or less doing the same thing started at a software development company as a as a programmer and then I was a support manager and then a BA and then they said hey how would you like to be a test manager and I said oh okay why not you've also had some experience teaching IT in high schools how does that compare to training within within a workplace the pay is much more rubbish um <laughs> honestly it's in some ways it's very similar I think people who who've become parents can possibly relate to the fact that sometimes your uh, your colleagues at work are not much different than children or angry adolescents. I guess one of the main differences is that generally, if you're doing a talk, people have actually chosen to be there. 
So people are quite, um, oh, gosh, you can stand up and talk to a room full of people. And I'm thinking, yes, but this this is an audience that's interested and wants me to succeed. They're not a bunch of year eight math students who want me to die. So um, it's it's quite a bit easier, I think, in the in the workplace. Teaching's not for the faint of heart. No. It's something if I ever had a complete career flip, I suspect teaching might be where I headed. Uh, it, it would certainly fit my passion for mentoring and coaching. Uh, like you said, the, the pay gap is, is the, the big thing there. I mean, we have uh, really good UK sort of bursary schemes to get people into teaching. But again, the, the, the salary that you can expect to get at the end of that is is perhaps not commensurate to the amount of effort that you put in. Yeah, the working conditions are are hideous. Like if you think your office is bad, go to a staff room and see what it's like in there. It's it's challenging, but I mean it's it's great. It, it, it is quite meaningful, I think, to work with kids. I I really enjoyed that part of it. I have to say, I guess I'm I'm kind of slaking my yearning for helping people with training and development in my current job with Yao. So. Eh. Yeah, I'm about to find a happy medium myself. I'm doing a talk in a few weeks' time at Cambridge University to some students there, to about a group of about 60 students, which is going to be interesting. It's a software testing internal conference they're holding, like a, all, all about the industry. And I've, I've been invited to speak. I'm really looking forward to it, but it's going to be an interesting challenge. Like you say, people who are not necessarily switched onto the material straight away, you know, how, how to get them engaged, it's going to be an interesting challenge, I think. Oh, that's, that's excellent. It's good to see testing at universities. I think that's a bit rare. Definitely in Australia, it's quite rare. Yeah, I'm expecting to get as much out of that as they get from me. <laughs> I really want to find out, yeah, how do you even get to the point of, of holding a, a software testing day at a university? What could we do to make this happen more? So I, I'm going to... Uh, that would be great, yeah. I will report back. It's kind of a... It's semi-private. It, it's invite only, so it's just, which is why I haven't advertised it as much as I would have liked mm. to. But after it, I will certainly be uh, publicising what happened and what we could do to make it happen more. Oh, excellent. Yeah, good. But before we get into the discussion about how you got into testing and what happened when you were first thrust into <laughs> the testing space, let's talk a little bit about your music choices and the inspirations behind them. You've been allowed to pick five songs to bring to the fictional Testers Desert Island. Is there kind of any theme running through the five songs? I did have to resort to a theme because I'm rubbish at picking your favourite X. I can't do it. So I, I scratched my head a bit and then I, I went back and listened to some previous podcasts, which were awesome. And it was something along the lines of pick something that's meaningful to you. So when I first started working with Anderson Consulting, I was sent overseas to the US and I moved around quite a lot. So what I've done is I've bypassed my my callow youth, so you won't get my uh, 1980s new romantic choices. I'll spare you those. And I've picked a song that sums up a little bit, I guess, a city that I was living in at a certain point in time. Okay, very interesting. A, a, a literal geographic journey as well as a musical journey. Let's hear what your first selection is then. Sure. The first selection, and this is from my time in Minneapolis, St. Paul in the US, and my choice is It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. And the reason I've chosen this is when I was there working on a, a project at a large bank there, there were a lot of people from out of town, from around the US mostly, a, a few other Aussies. And there was one guy who uh, was a really big into music. I think he edited some zine. He was from, from LA. And there's a big club in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Some people might have heard of it. It's affiliated with Prince in some way, and it's called First Avenue. And it's 
been there for years and years and it's a big music venue and he'd always come running and go, oh, you know, insert name of band you've never heard is playing. We have to go. And so the whole bunch of us got really into what was then alternative music scene. And there was one radio station. Yes, kids, before Spotify, we all had to listen to the radio. And so your choice of radio station was key. And there was a radio station there that was uh, played this kind of music. So we all listened to it all the time. And right when we were, the project was winding up, we were leaving, they changed format and this station changed from alternative rock music to country which was like the end of the world for all of us and it was the end of the world for all the people that worked at the station because they were all getting fired and so they started playing this song more and more and more and more and more and finally on the last day they played it on repeat for 24 hours and so I almost got to the point where I knew all the words but it kind of sums up this kind of little end of a little era where we were all you know living the life there for for 18 months in in Minneapolis St. Paul I am a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world so its own needs, dummy serve your own needs, beat it up and not speak, grunt, no strength, the ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high choir and a fire representing seven games in a government for hire at a combat site, let the West coming in a hurry with the fury speeding down, your neck, team my team reporters battle Trump, tether crop, look at that, no plane, fine, then, uh oh, overflow, population common food, but it'll do, save yourself, serve yourself, world serve its own needs, listen to your heart, That was It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. Now, at the start, Michelle, we mentioned that you've done a variety of different roles in your career before you eventually were hooked into testing and suddenly found that now you're a test manager. How much prior knowledge did you have of, of what testing even involved before you took that role? Well, it's interesting. I guess I had done old school style testing because when I joined with Anderson Consulting, they gave everybody the background as it stood, you know, however many, <clears throat> I won't mention how many years it was before that, that I started. <laughs> I've tried to avoid it. Yes, yes, started my career. But, you know, one of the things that's been very interesting to me is when I look back and think of how we started programming then as well, we were given designs and we were given technical designs down to pseudocode where you basically translated pseudocode into code and you were almost like a preliminary compiler and that's how testing was as well you know fast forward x number of years and if you gave that to a developer now they'd just laugh at you but a lot of times testing is the same there are patches and places and I think we all have seen heard or been in them where you've got the senior person who writes the test script and then they give it to the junior person to execute and so when I was first invited to be a a test manager I thought okay cool what what's happened since I last looked at testing you know things things must have advanced since then right obviously um so I I was slightly horrified to find that in the company I was working at it hadn't really advanced. And I thought, well, that's rubbish. So I went out and I thought, well, I need to find what the cool kids are doing. And I, I'm very spoiled in Melbourne, particularly because there's a very vibrant and active test community here. And it was great. I went to a, uh, a conference, which I think 
was one of the first conferences I'd ever been to and I met a few people and they were doing meetups and it was all happening and I had joined Twitter, which I, I know a lot of people love it or hate it, but gosh, it, it's been so helpful to me in the, and just finding out information and articles and blogs and, you know, obviously the Ministry of Testing is awesome. There's so much helpful stuff out there once you get started that it, it's it's pretty easy if you if you work at it to find out how to do things a little bit better. Okay, so you had a bag full of ideas of, of how you might change things. I saw uh, an interview where you said that your your role there was to reimagine the QA division. Does that mean that the company kind of already recognised there was the need for change? Uh, I'd like to say they did in a good way, but they were a little bit more about make it faster. I think that the reimagining thing was something that I decided to do a little bit perhaps differently than what they were hoping because once I was armed with all this new information I was like my god we have to do everything differently and and I kind of went rushing around and 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 trying to work out ways that we could at a, at a reasonable scale um that the team I was I was managing had at its peak more than 70 people to just do everything differently than we had been doing which yeah, like I say, I don't think that's quite what they were hoping for, but that's what they got. <laughs> so how did you convince the organisation that the type of change you were looking for was the type that would suit the company? Honestly, I don't know if I totally did. I think there were some things in my favour. So first of all, I had been with that company for quite a long time, hmm. which was one of the reasons they invited me into this role in the first place. Our whole testing team was offshore. And there had historically been issues, as can happen. And one of the issues was, I think, a level of trust. The previous manager there had perhaps not performed the way that they were hoping. So they said, look, we really need somebody who can, who we know and the people there know and can just get in and, and, and build up a bit more rapport. So that part worked well. And the fact that I had been working with a lot of the people as a teammate and a colleague before, I think that that helped with a, a fair bit of trust as well. Another thing that was in our favour was we were starting to work. This is a software vendor that's that's working with large financial institutions in Australia. And we were trying to engage with them on a more agile type of model. And one of those benefits or, or one of aspects of that was the client agreed or as part of the deal to have some of our testers come from the Philippines and be on site. And I think working a bit more in the team, which is what I was pushing as well. And that was coming not just from me, but from the client side as well. That was helpful in terms of seeing how things could work a little bit differently, a little bit more collaboratively, rather than throwing things over the fence and writing giant weighty documents that we forwarded off for sign off and that type of thing. So that that was beneficial. But I, I honestly, I don't think I achieved the the full scale change that I was hoping for. I, I think a lot of these things, it's, it's a sliding scale. I mean, you, you can never achieve everything that you want in anything, you know, be it, you know, getting all the features you want in a project to ship on time or whatever. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's a sliding scale. It is. And I think there were benefits to the company. I think there were some improvements. There were benefits to the team as well, because they were exposed to some different ideas and different ways of working. And a lot of particularly the more senior experienced people really started to run with it and realize that they didn't have to fill out 
spreadsheets and and they were actually allowed to think a lot of them I think were quite inspired this there's a few of them that that have have escaped and now they all work in New Zealand and I think I don't want to say I incited some sort of of riot but it was interesting to see the change where we hosted a meetup, for example, which had never been done. And one or two of the people that I work with started speaking at meetups and they had a little conference and a few of them started speaking at that. And I thought that was quite nice. And we're going to talk more about trust, communication and how this all plays into your test bash talk after we hear from you about your second song choice. Sure. So my second song is a song from a fine New Zealand band called The Headless Chickens. The song is called Cruise Control. Again, related to a place I was living. When I left Minneapolis, St. Paul, I moved to Wellington, New Zealand, and was there for about another 18 months. And uh, this was this was one of my uh, rockin' tunes of the time. That was The Headless Chickens with Cruise Control, a song that Michelle relates to her time in Wellington. So Test Bash Australia is fast approaching, Michelle, and you're giving a talk called A Tester's Guide to Changing Hearts and Minds. Can you give us a quick overview of what that talk entails? One of the things, obviously, plunging into into testing and coming along a bit later than a lot of people, I suppose, is you, you see all these things. Oh, testing's changing. Shift testing to the left. Move quality to the left. You know, everybody should learn automation. You should do all these things. And there is some resistance to that, I think, if if people are a bit complacent. But on the other side of the of the fence, and probably more aligned with people that would attend Test Bash. People do these things and they go out and they learn automation and they learn how they can contribute if they shift to the left and they have the analysis skills and they they dig in and, you know, they, they learn all the things and then nobody notices. So they're, they're ready to go, but they're never, you know, it's, it's, it's like put me in coach, but the coach just leaves you on the bench. Mm. And I thought, well, that's a bit wrong. So this talk that I'm doing is, I suppose it's a little bit of a, it is a bit of marketing, I think, and education and trying to work out if you're one of these people and you've, you've, you've put all the work in, how do you get people to, or your team to take advantage of that and recognize that, you know, you're not a button pressing monkey, you're, you're ready to make a, a really big contribution to the team. And I think things are getting better for testers. I think we are certainly, we're not quite the second class citizens we once were. We're not, you know, the, the you know, like you say, the team of monkeys you throw it to, to bash the thing apart. But there is still the myth, for example, that testers are just failed developers. You know, they, they, developer is what you strive for. And if you can't do that, you'll be a tester. And, you know, so there, there is still some hierarchical implications there. 
Why do you think that we're still struggling to get our voices heard? Honestly, I think it's a matter of silos, uh, even in terms of what people attend. So I'd be interested to see how many developers go to a testing conference. Obviously, I've been to quite a few and I go back and I talk to people and I say, hey, you know what? I was at CastX and and we, you know, one of the speakers was was talking a bit about Kinefin and everybody looks at me and they're, you what? At a testing conference? And I feel like I need to sort of hold up a big sign and say, newsflash, testers are smart people that talk about complicated things, you know. It's like it doesn't occur to people because they don't, they don't go, they don't know. They don't, they don't get involved in these sorts of conversations. And it, there, are, there are some sort of echo chambers, you know, agile people go to the agile things, developers go to the developer things, testers go to the tester things, and people aren't exposed as much. There's not as much cross-pollination as there needs to be in terms of, I guess, conversations as much as anything. I think the same is true the other way as well, that there are – I know some testers who will go to developer-focused events – um, some of whom have been previous guests on the podcast but often when they do that they find that the testing discussion is perhaps a little behind the times i remember i'm sure he won't mind me name checking Stephen janoway went to a conference recently where one of the first slides they threw up was the testing pyramid <laughs> i was like no oh, we have moved past that that's it see because the developers haven't kept up because you know it's not their area of research I suppose I'm I'm one of these really ridiculously quote unquote academic type of people in the testing space because I haven't really been a tester for anywhere near as long as other people have. It, for me, it's it's studies and theory and knowing what can be done and then kind of encouraging people to to get on with it that are actually doing the real work. But, you know, gosh, it took a, a bit of effort and a bit of time to do that. And I think people maybe think they don't have the time or it's not going to be interesting or, you know, why would I want to do that? I, I'd really encourage developers to get out, you know, hey, go to a testing meetup, drink some beer, eat some pizza, you know, learn some stuff. I guess we could grossly oversimplify it and say it just comes down to being a communication problem, like a lot of things in development. It's, it's like yeah, if you if everyone spoke to each other, then maybe we'd have have a better time of it. But why do you think we struggle to do that as an industry? Oh, that old chestnut communication. It's the the problem of everything. It's all, humans, damn humans, and their inability to communicate. If I hadn't answered that, I'd write a book and make a fortune and, and live on a tropical island somewhere and not this desert island that I'm trapped on with my music. I don't have an, a, a real answer apart from I'd like to try and take this talk and tweak it a little bit and, and weasel it into developer conferences and, and make it why you need to pay more attention to your testers. I think that's that's my um, my sub-goal. I think you just have to keep working at it, basically. So I'm, I'm hoping that this talk that I'm giving will, will give – people who are testers some ideas of how they can communicate with their team with their workplace with their colleagues with the random guy at a barbecue and and just get some of these ideas across hmm. while we're talking about communication the problems of communication and even writing books about it this is as good a time as any to to mention a, a quick tribute to Jerry Weinberg, who passed away a couple of weeks ago. This is the first episode I've recorded since that happened. Uh, Jerry obviously has had a number of name checks on the podcast in the past. 
He's had the honour of one book selected for the for the island, which was Richard Bradshaw picked General Systems Thinking as the book he's always wanted to read but never has. Several people have name-checked Perfect Software as just a, a classic tome of testing uh, about, mm. about understanding the problems of communication. And he's done a, a work in a load of different fields. Actually, I really valued the work he's done on the art of writing. He's written a book about the, the Fieldstone method, which has really changed the way that I think about writing, about the fact that you don't need to pick something up, write it, start to finish, and then be done. The fact that these are ideas you develop over time. Sometimes these ideas are little pockets of things that then merge together to become one bigger thing. I never met the man personally, uh, and I'm gutted to have not done that. I've heard very, really good things about the PSL course that he runs with Esther Darby, and he is going to be greatly missed. Mm, definitely. In my researching of testing, I went on to Lean Pub, and they've got the packets by a giant pile of Jerry Weinberg's books. So that's a, one of the first things I did. Yeah, I'll put some links to those in the show notes. Yeah, the, the testing packet is certainly one that I picked up early. Mm. That doesn't include quite so much of the of the writing stuff. I definitely recommend Weinberg on writing and the Fieldstone Method as two really, really good ones if you're interested in the art of writing. The test collection also includes Are Your Lights On, which is another really good book around the subject of communication. So yeah, his his legacy will certainly continue. He... he um, he has put a great deal of information out there that continues to benefit us to this day and, and will benefit future generations, I'm sure, and he will be sadly missed. Mm. We'll continue our discussion about communication in the next section. Uh, Michelle, what is your third song you've picked? My third song represents my time in North Carolina. I moved from New Zealand to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then after that I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so what could be better than a little Southern culture on the skids? And this song is called Soul City. This was also one of the songs that was played by one of my friends, Greg, who had a band. So we heard this, we heard this a lot. And uh, it's some good old rockabilly type type music. And they're a lot of fun. We saw them live a few times. And there's there's a few bands like them around, but yeah, definitely good uh, good southern uh, summertime concert music. That was Soul City by Southern Culture on the Skids. That was the studio version. The only version available on Spotify is a live version. So if you're listening to our Spotify playlist, you'll hear the uh, slightly more wild live version of that track. So we've been talking about how to get testers onto an organization's radar and to get their thoughts and opinions heard more often. Often it's just hard to get physical FaceTime with people, managers, if they work either remotely or they're busy, it could just be very hard to do so. How can you overcome the challenges of physically not being able to get hold of the people who can make the difference? I think that's an interesting question because it really depends on the way your workplace is set up. Because why would I need to talk to a manager? Why can't I just work with my team? I think if you're in a a kind of an agile setup, the first group that you need to influence is your immediate team that you're working with, which is hopefully a little bit easier because you're actually working with them rather than trying to uh, go and tackle a manager all all on your own. 
I think if you can influence one person and then another person or another person in your team, the combined voices end up being a little bit louder. And if you can affect a change on your team, management will probably notice, oh, well, things in that team are going along really well. What's, what's going on? And, you know, they might start the conversation themselves. Again, if you're not in that kind of environment, I think things potentially will be a little bit trickier. But again, it's probably more about finding allies that will help you rather than trying to tackle things on your own. That's, that's my, my take on it anyway. Mm. And just to prove that this conversation is cyclical, uh, a lot of that, particularly in smaller agile teams, comes down to trust. So I work in two separate agile teams at the moment, one which has been together for a very long time and where, in fact, I'm the scrum master of that team, and the other team which... While it isn't worse, it's a it's a newer team who are perhaps not working quite as effectively together yet because they're not as experienced at doing it. And it's really weird how you can take people who can do perfectly good things in, in one environment and you throw them all into a, a new environment and it, they've got to re, relearn. They've got to find each other's boundaries. Oh, definitely. And the thing that people don't tend to give much weight is a team is a completely different team by adding or subtracting one person. So oh, we've got a new hire, you know, we'll just put them on your team. It's still the same team. No, it's not. It's a completely different team now. You just put someone else in there. So every time something changes a little bit, you need to be able to adapt and hopefully not take too long. Now, the title for your talk mentioned hearts and minds, which is a phrase that I've previously only heard when referring to the uh, American PR campaign for the Iraq war. And it was all about the campaign to win hearts and minds. Does that mean that you think that this is kind of a, a dark art? We need to kind of manipulate people to have our way of thinking. And I had never, ever heard that before. And now I'm absolutely <laughs> horrified and want to change the title of my talk because there, there are a whole bunch of things. See, this is where you need to in-depth Google before you submit the talk. <laughs> It's actually, a, if you look up hearts and minds of employees, you know, there's a whole bunch of kind of articles and strategies about that. And I don't know if they pinched it from a war, but I am not advocating a war. This is not a war. That's <laughs> not a dark art. I was just looking for a snappy title and I'm very sorry. <laughs> okay. Where were you when I submitted this talk, Neil? And <laughs> uh, now I wish I'd never told you, or at least wait until afterwards, because, yeah, like you say, yeah, the, the, that's not what the message that's is you're getting across. Yeah. This is not about Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, if we look about what, what it is about them, because I think this, this almost came up in discussion earlier, is that actually, as testers who have this information, we almost need to be like salespeople, really. We need to actually be good at presenting ourselves and advertising the, the ideas that we're trying to bring across that can be difficult and not come naturally to some people i mean i for example have never worked in sales it's something I, I would never really want to do and i think partly that plays into my introverted side but if you are someone who's not naturally adept at putting themselves out there how do you put yourself out there well again that's something i'll be making some suggestions in my talk don't get me started on the introvert extrovert thing because I, I find it unfortunate that people tend to use particularly introvert, the, the label of introvert as an excuse mm. where, Oh, I can't do that. I'm an introvert. And I'm like, well, no, you, you take, take ownership. You, you can, you are deliberately choosing not to, and that is fine, but you know, it's your choice. Right. So I think for a lot of people, it's putting them out of their comfort zone, but that's how we grow. 
So yes, I know it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to stand up and 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 do your first talk in front of people. It is uncomfortable to put your name on an article or even an email sometimes. My God, what if somebody sees it? But it it's it's how you grow. And I, I totally understand that there are people that really, again, it's their choice. They do not want to do it. And that's fine. But if you if you do want to help educate your team, you will try and find a way that suits your style. It, it may not be riding into the office in a unicycle, juggling and, and, you know, blowing a trumpet. That's fine. There are a lot of different ways that you can influence people. And part of it is being perceived as competent. So you need people to know by some way, shape or form that you know what you're talking about. I, I try not to think of it as sales. It is a little bit of marketing, but a lot of it is education. If you if you think of it as I'm not trying to sell myself, I'm not trying to sell people on testing, but I'm trying to teach them what it really is. It's not Excel spreadsheets. It's not, you know, like that cat in the GIF pounding on a keyboard. That's not what it is at all. And, you know, gosh, I know what it is and I really need to help get that message out to people. And I think if you think about it as a little bit more of helping others understand and a bit more like education, it potentially is more palatable than, you know, I'm selling you the testing snake oil and I'm not enjoying it, but I feel like I have to do it. I don't know. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see the ideas that you put forward in the talk about how to help people to do that. I think credibility is a massive thing. As you say, when you've been in an organization for a while, it gives you that extra power to actually have more of a voice. Even if it's something you're not comfortable doing, people will be like, oh, it's it's, it's the person that knows all about this. We should listen to them. And I think, yeah, anything you can do to earn credibility as you go will help make this easier. Definitely. And you set your own boundaries. I, I worked with a, a lady who was a developer and it was very well known that there was no way on God's green earth she was going to stand up in front of a bunch of people and talk. And we knew that, but she had influence in, in other ways and we knew not to ask her, but she did a lot of other things, a bit more behind the scenes. There, there's no magic bullet. I think people just need to, it's context. People need to work out what, what suits their personal style in the environment that they're in. And we've got just one more section of conversation to come where we're going to discuss how this becomes more challenging when you work remotely with people who can't see you. But before that, we've got this small matter of your penultimate song choice. Indeed. So next travel location was moving to Chicago. And in Chicago, I got to do something that I had always wanted to do, which was to learn a little bit of Spanish. And I, I went to Instituto Cervantes there, which is... I think run from based in Spain. So they're, they're the real deal and they were awesome. I uh, had a lot of colleagues that I worked with, quite a few who had worked in Argentina or uh, Colombia and Chicago, obviously very multicultural, very Spanish speaking. I was dating a, a guy who was from Spain for a while there and I started listening to a lot of Latin music. And this, this song is called El Matador by Los Fabulosos Cadillacs. They are from Argentina. And I actually got to see them live there as, as well when I was in Chicago, which was great. So I still have a whole bunch of 
you know, CDs, kids. They're the shiny little round things that, that sparkle in the light. Buried in my garage somewhere, a bunch of uh, Spanish music CDs ranging from this style of music to uh, the cheesy, the Ricky Martin and Enrique Iglesias and, and that type of thing. It's a lot of fun. With apologies for pronunciation, that's Los Fabulosos Cadillacs with El Matador, a band who Michelle own on CD, believe it or not. I find it weird that the discussion, I remember when I was young, people were, the, the old people were the ones who said they used to have things on vinyl. And now and now it's a discussion about, oh, kids, do you remember CDs? That makes me feel so old that there are people who don't remember CDs. And, and all the cool people have still got things on vinyl. Back on vinyl. It's go, what goes yep. around comes around. Yeah. <laughs> So let's move into our final discussion about the challenges of trust and communication to make change happen in the workplace. We mentioned the world is becoming increasingly agile. And they're also becoming increasingly diverse and remote. I'm sure most people have experienced working with an offshore team at some point in their careers. That obviously makes it harder to build trust when you can't actually see people. You can't have a, an almost real-time conversation. I know you can get around it with things like video chat, but how much harder is it when you actually you're not in the flesh with someone? It is a challenge. I think that's that's one of the great balancing points of of every company these days because the one of the tenets of agile is oh we should all be located but again one of the the things that modern companies like to do is offer flexible working. So yes, you should always be co-located and we let you work remotely from anywhere. I mean it doesn't doesn't quite work. So there's a company in Australia called Invato that seemed to have got that that balance down somehow but it is it is an an ongoing challenge the team that i worked with in in my previous job as a test manager as i mentioned the whole team was located in in manila in the philippines and there were some interesting things i i, I discovered from working with them one of the topics of talks i've previously given is around that and i think again there's a lot of stuff on the internet about this you can find out information on on good practices that you can use when you're you're working with a, an offshore team and one of them is try and visit try and swap have have people meet up at some place i know automatic that uh, that builds wordpress they're completely around the world remote workers but they meet at least once a year maybe once or twice they all get together so they all they'll kind of know each other the the challenge with companies that are deliberately offshoring is often it's done for cost and then they won't pay for that so that's an extra challenge if you've never actually met people how do you go about doing that 
and you end up doing all sorts of things you, you think you potentially never would do. So, for example, in the Philippines, many, many things are done on Facebook. So I, I have a Facebook account and originally I was, I was quite strict that that's, that's not work. That's my friend stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm not friending people on Facebook, but I kept getting friend requests from people. And finally I thought, ah, what the heck? Fine. I, I accept, I accept all your friend requests. And it really made such a difference because now I could see their family, their kids, their vacations. And then we had something to talk about. So we had a chat which was, you know, slightly asynchronous, but it would be, hey, you know, I saw your pictures on, on Facebook and that beach looked amazing and suddenly you had something to talk about and a little bit of a connection. I don't know if that works everywhere. I think the Philippines is one of those places where people really are into Facebook. But some something like that where it's a little bit personal was very, very helpful in, in that scenario. Yeah, it's really useful to be able to actually humanise the people you're working with, particularly if, if you don't see them all the time. Otherwise, it, it's too easy to just think of them as as a faceless entity that you can rail against. You know, if, if mm. they're like, oh, I can't believe that so-and-so has said this. And you, you could believe it if you knew them as a person and why they were asking this of you and what it was, how that played into the bigger picture of, you know, their, their working lives, their personal lives. You know, we mentioned Twitter earlier. I have in my time got into the odd either not fight on Twitter, but I've, you know, I've, I've blocked people who I've just like, I can't be dealing with this right now. And then I've met those people in real life and I've gone, actually, no, they were having a perfectly rational, sensible conversation. And I was just, I was the one who was not connected with it because I didn't really appreciate who they were. I think you get better at that with practice. I think mm. now that you've had that experience, if you were in a conversation with somebody and you were like, what the heck are they talking about? You might remember back to that and go oh let me step back and, and think about what this person's doing and, and and maybe look at it from a different angle I think it's almost like you have to have fallen down the pit a couple of times before you realize that you need to look at it differently yeah I think it changes you and weirdly enough uh, I was having a conversation with my girlfriend recently who's who sees me as this incredibly serene person who's great at diffusing situations and I've said it's only from years and years of getting it wrong and, and being on the really aggravated side of it that has led me to this point but uh, yeah it's it again it, it helps to build to build a foundation of trust is just to be seen as someone who is uh yeah trying to bring people together Michelle, you mentioned that you've done a talk on this previously. There's actually a video on YouTube from your Cuke Up 2016 talk that I watched and enjoyed. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes for people who want to know more specifically about the challenges when working remotely. Thank you. Which brings us to the end of our discussion phase. Before we wrap up, we've got one more song that you've chosen. We do. So this is my next move transition from Chicago to L.A., and this, this song I quite liked when I was in Chicago, but then when I moved to LA and I was dating my now husband, one of the things he wanted to try was swing dancing. So we went to the Pasadena Swing Dancing School, which was miles and miles away from where we were living, but it's really quite famous. And um, we've got the little black and white shoes. We've still got them in the cupboard somewhere. James wore them to our wedding. So this is this is a swing a swing song, swingish from the uh, from the nineties. So it's from a band called the Cherry Pop and Daddies, and it's called the Brown Derby Jump. To make a truly wayward man She's not a talker, her teeth are fixed But she's a looker that lives for kicks A nightmare straight from an auto dicks Everybody 
Friday swing and we're at the Brown Derby Chips. Brown Derby Jump by the Cherry Popping Daddies, the final song selection today by Michelle Playfair. And Michelle, you're allowed to take one other thing to the Desert Island with you, and that is one book and one book only. We've had a lot of guests recently who've tried to push the boundaries on what a book is, so <laughs> I'm pleased to see you've picked an actual book. Well, I was tempted to say the Wheel of Time series in one volume, but no. <laughs> I, I am going to take Catch-22 with me, which is a remarkable, marvellous book. You'll laugh, you'll cry. It's it's absurd, and yet it's very, very real. If you're not familiar with it, it it's worth worth picking up. It is where the term Catch-22 comes from. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea. Yeah. It's a book that I read in my childhood. It's actually being adapted to a, like a six-part TV miniseries. I don't know if it's a HBO, but it's, it's something along those lines with a Ooh, really, yeah. really big-name cast of like George Clooney and people in it that's coming Ooh, next okay. year. It was a very bad movie. Yeah, 1970 movie and, and an aborted pilot for a TV series uh, way back when as well. But uh, the cast looks very promising for this, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. Ooh, uh, maybe we'll talk about it on my other podcast screen testing sometime when it actually comes out. We'll see. Mm. But the night is rapidly drawing to a close over there in Australia, so I'm very grateful for you talking to me uh, today, Michelle. If people would like to get in touch with you and find out more about your upcoming talk or the ideas we've discussed today, where are the best places for them to do that? I am Michelle Playfair on all the things. So you will find me Michelle Playfair on Twitter or LinkedIn. Probably Twitter is the best to have a chat. And hopefully I'll see some people at Test Bash. I should give you a chance to plug Yao a little bit. You've recently taken a role as executive director with them. Could you explain a little bit about what they do and where they do it? Sure. They are a, or we are, a software development conference It's been going for 10 years. It's the 10th anniversary this year, and it was started by a gentleman by the name of Dave Thomas, who is Canadian. And this is supposed to be his hobby, so he decided he needed somebody to run it full-time in Australia, so that's where I step in. We are in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Singapore, and Hong Kong at the moment with a series of general software development conferences and we have some smaller ones like lambda jam for functional programming connected has internet of things we have some cto summits for ctos and do yao nights so the the premise behind the development of this company is to bring overseas experts if you will people from the uk and uh, europe and the us to australia who might not otherwise stop by so it's uh it's very exciting for australians to have luminaries of software development come down and visit us so i'm i'm thrilled to be working with the company it's great it's an ongoing life goal for me to visit Australia and having never previously heard of Yao, I would love to to get to one of their events while I'm down there and having seen the stuff you've been sharing on Twitter, the, as you say, the variety of types of events, locations of events is absolutely massive. So uh, exciting futures ahead for you there, I'm sure. Definitely. I'm hoping it's going to be one of those places where testers and developers can cross-pollinate ideas a little bit more. Along hold with hands and sing songs. BAs and everybody, exactly. Well, they're very, they're <laughs> yes. very, the, the big conferences are very non-specific non-specific technology so yeah it's it's a sort of a melting pot where this could happen i think 
There'll be some links to the Yao events in the show notes, where you'll also find links to our Spotify playlist, our list of books on goodreads.com, and a link if you'd like to sign up to be a guest on a future episode. But for now, it's time to bid you farewell. And thank you very much, Michelle, for taking time out with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great, great chat. Cool. And I'll speak to the rest of you again very soon. Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing, written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovich. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island 